Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs podcast. Every week we will provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday services. In this episode, the kingdom value of mercy. Having received mercy, we then share mercy with others. At the very core of the gospel is the reality that it is God's mercy flowing out of his love for us that has extended to us the ability to be forgiven and reconciled to himself. In this week's message, our executive pastor, Paul Hansen, unpacks what mercy really is all about. Jesus, God incarnate, took on humanity in order to be our high priest, offering on our behalf his own life to atone for our sin in order that God's wrath would be satisfied and we ourselves would be made right with him. So let's turn it over to Paul as we look at the next kingdom value. All right, well, Happy New Year. We are finally at 2021. Who knows what this year is going to hold, right? It'll be a, it'll be a good year no matter what, though, because we know that God is good and he is with us in all of those things. He is walked through 2020 with us, and we know he's walking through 2021. And, uh, and that's really part of why we are committing to this 21 days of prayer is just recognizing maybe we all need to increase our awareness of God's presence with us. And we can certainly do that through a time of prayer. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Paul. I'm the executive pastor here. And uh, today I get to be a part of our teaching team. Um, typically, Corey, our lead pastor, uh, does the bulk of the teaching, but we kind of take little snippets here and there and interject some of our other pastoral staff. And so uh, I am here with you today, and uh, it's going to be a good time. It's always good for me to have to preach because it causes me to maybe stop and think about some things that I don't always uh, stop and reflect on in as deep of a way. And uh, that certainly was true of this week. We have actually been in a series all the way back to the beginning of last fall, talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and what that is and what that looks like and what that means. And we've gone through a lot of great things. And uh, and then we've kind of been in a little portion of that where we've been specifically uh, going through Matthew chapter five and the Beatitudes, which are really some of the, the kingdom values, the things that are of greatest value and greatest importance that are identified as the values of the kingdom of God. And so that's where we're going to be continuing on today. Now, the reality is, is we all have values, right? Every single one of us has values. Uh, They might just be intrinsic values, values that were kind of brought into your life through your upbringing, values that came about because of experiences that you've encountered over the course of your life. But maybe those values are actually values that you've sat down and thought about and considered and decided and determined on your own. These are the things that I want to place of greatest importance in my life. These are the things that are going to shape everything that I do. That's what values ultimately do. They give us direction. They give us insight. They're the driver behind our daily decisions, the things that we decide about, whether they're big decisions, like deciding about where you're going to go to college or deciding about uh, who you're going to marry or if you're going to have kids, deciding about what kind of career you're going to have, deciding about how you're going to spend your wealth, how you're going to choose to recreate and use your time. All of those things that we decide ultimately come out of our values. And the reality is, is that we all have personal values and we're into this new year. And I think for a lot of us, again, whether you've uh, really identified what your values are or not, those values are driving things that you're doing right now. Right? A lot of us are kind of making New Year's resolutions or setting goals for the coming year or thinking about what kind of things we want to see happen in our life. All of those details are ultimately driven out of our values. All of those decisions about how we're going to use our time and our wealth and our resource and our relationships and our life come out of values. But not only do we have personal values, there's also organizational values. The business that you work for or the company that you own or run uh, or the school that you attend, all of those have core values, things that as a business or as an organization, they have said, these are going to be the things that determine all that we do as a company. They're going to shape how we interact as employees They're going to shape how we choose to run our business, the things that we're going to engage in, the way we're going to go about our business from day to day are all ultimately coming out of the values of that organization. As a church, we have values. 
They're the things that determine how we go about utilizing and investing the resources that God has entrusted us as a church for his kingdom purposes. It's how we choose to go about presenting the gospel and then engaging in our community and serving those who are around us, whether it's here or in other parts of the world. Right? Those values determine what we do on a Sunday morning. They determine how we go about connecting with one another in relationships with one another in relationship with God. All of that comes out of values. And the reality is, is the kingdom of God has values. And those values shape what the kingdom looks like, but they also shape how we interact within the kingdom. And so that's what Jesus was uh, imparting to us in Matthew chapter five, as he was kind of going through these beatitudes as a part of his sermon on the mountain. So today we're gonna be looking at one of those values. It's the value of mercy. And how many of you remember playing the game Mercy when you were younger? Any of you remember that? A a few of you? Not very many. Maybe I was only, maybe it was a Midwest thing. But right, the game Mercy, you played with a sibling or maybe you played with some friends on the playground or after school. And it was really a game about how can I exercise my strength and my power over someone else? And so what you would do is you'd lock hands together with your fingers intertwined and you would try to use leverage and strength to push the other person's hands back. Think arm wrestling, right? But just with your wrist and trying to push them back to the point where they are under your submission. They are starting to feel pain. And ultimately what you're trying to do is get them to say what? Mercy, right? To plead to you to release them from their pain. And that's how we often think about mercy. We think about it maybe sometimes as our ability to exercise our strength and power over someone else. But the reality is that's not what mercy really is all about. And that's not what mercy looks like in the Bible, And so today we're going to take a look at what Jesus is talking about when he talks about mercy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So that's the value of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you were to look up the word mercy in the dictionary, or you were to do a Google search or something like that, you would find some sort of definition or some sort of explanation of mercy that would read something like this. Forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Right? Forgiveness shown towards someone who it is within one's power to punish or harm. Now that sounds kind of like the game mercy, right? You've put them under your power, your ability to harm them, waiting for them to ask you for forgiveness to release them from that. But if you were to also look more into that definition in the dictionary or a search, there may be a footnote that includes this, performed out of a desire to relieve suffering. Now that's a really important footnote. That's a really important aspect of mercy is that mercy is extended not out of a desire to exercise our own strength and authority and power over someone, but it's something that we exercise out of a desire to alleviate them of their pain or their suffering. See, there's several different components to mercy But the one that maybe is most clearly understood is that part of mercy is this act of forgiveness. Now, how many of you have started the 21 days of prayer? Kind of jumped in on Friday or got going? That's great. And if you haven't yet, like we said in the video, I encourage you, just jump in now. There's nothing like, oh, you have to do 21 days. It's just about focusing our time and getting engaged in the word of God and specifically in the Lord's prayer, how he taught us to pray. But when we get to days 11 and 12, because what we're doing is we're just going through the Lord's prayer kind of word or phrase or meaning at a time. When we get to verses, uh, to days 11 and 12, we're gonna come to the part of the Lord's prayer that we just read and prayed a few minutes ago that says this, it says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. Now, in some translations, instead of using the word sin, it actually uses the word debt. It says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. 
You see, it carries with it this idea of a debt or a penalty, something that is owed, right? About it in the, the financial world, right? Whether it's you have a loan or some sort of uh, indebtedness that you have to someone, when they forgive your loan or they forgive your debt, what you owe is being taken care of, whether that's through your own efforts of paying off that loan or whether that's through someone else or their generosity, whatever it might be. But there is a forgiveness of that loan or that debt. Same thing in kind of the social realm. If you think about kind of our legal system, right? And when someone commits a crime, there is a debt that's owed for that crime that they have committed. There is a punishment that must be paid for. That might be jail time. That might be some sort of a fee. But in some way, something is owed for that crime that was committed. And it must be taken care of. It must be forgiven in one way or another. Now, Jesus, uh, he had a way of going about helping us understand some of these concepts. And he would tell these parables, kind of these stories that would kind of give real life situations so that we would know not only what does, what does this mean, but what does this actually look like and how does it flesh out in our everyday life? So he would tell these parables all the time, usually in response to people's questions. And in Matthew chapter 18, we find Peter asking Jesus a question. And Jesus responds with this parable and it's known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I don't want us to get too caught up on the number here. We're going to see at the end of the parable that Jesus wasn't trying to place a specific, this is how many times, and once you get to 78, you're done. You don't have to forgive anymore, right? He was trying to instill the depth of this value, how significant this value of mercy and forgiveness was that we are to extend to others. And so then he goes on and he says, I'm not just going to tell him this 77 number, but I'm going to present a picture of what ongoing forgiveness looks like and what mercy is really all about. And so in verse 23, it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Right? How often do we Extend forgiveness is a matter of our hearts. It's not a numeric number. But the reality is, is that this value of mercy in the kingdom of God is one that God expects for us to extend to others. 
He expects it to happen within the kingdom of God. It's a core value of the kingdom. It shapes how we interact with one another inside of the kingdom, and it it shapes how we interact even with those outside of the kingdom. The reality is, is that God modeled mercy by extending it towards us, right? That he modeled it by extending mercy towards us, showing us his mercy, And he fully expects us to extend mercy to others as well. Warren Wearsby on his commentary on Matthew wrote this. He said, having received mercy, we then share mercy with others, right? Having received mercy ourselves, we then share mercy with others. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter six, which is where we find the Lord's prayer that we just read a little bit ago, at the end of the Lord's prayer, Jesus tags this statement on. He says, for if you forgive other people of their offenses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your father will not forgive your offenses. Now, wow, right? That's kind of a hard statement to take in, to think about, wait, we, everything we know that the Bible seems to teach us and tell us about God is that he is a forgiving God, and, right? He has removed our sins as far as the East is from the West. So how could God not forgive us? The reality is what Jesus is saying here is that there's this deep embedded rooted value that God has of mercy and forgiveness. And he fully expects us to live it out because of the extent to which he offered it to us, right? He paid a great price. The amount that was owed for the forgiveness of our sin was a life. There's great value and there's great worth to what God offered as the forgiveness of our sin. And so he expects us to understand that, right? The reality is if we, if we truly knew how much God paid for our life, it would change us, right? If we knew the true value, it would change our life. It would become a value of our very own. And that's the reality is when we surrender our life to Christ, not just believing in a God, but we actually surrender our life to him. And we say, God, we want to be a part of your kingdom because of what you have done for us. We want to take on your values. We want our heart and our life to be transformed and changed. We want your values to become our values. And when they do, we then begin to act them out in the very same way that God acted them out towards us. When we show mercy to others, it reflects not only the value of the kingdom of God, but it also reflects our understanding of what Christ has done for us. Now in Matthew chapter five, where we find this beatitude and it says, blessed are the merciful. If you go into the original language, into the Greek text where we translate that word merciful, the actual Greek word that's found there is only found one other place in the New Testament. And it's used by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. And he's using it in context of when he is writing about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And this is what it says in Hebrews 2, 17. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, right? There's that word, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement or some translations use the word propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, kids, if you have those little Harvest Kids like activity packs that you got on your way in, there's a little note-taking sheet on there, and I think it's got a little bubble that says, words I don't know. You could probably write propitiation in there, right? Like, I'm guessing all of the adults, we could write that word in there too. Like, what is that? That's not a word we use. We might even have to write the word atonement in there. We don't really know what that means. It's a unique word. Well, the reality is here in Hebrews 2.17, there are a couple of really significant and really important kind of theological statements that I think help us to understand 
what mercy is really all about and to help us to understand the extent to which God paid our debt. And so the three theological statements we're gonna kind of hit quickly this morning are this, incarnation, a high priest and atonement or propitiation, okay? Incarnation, a high priest and atonement or propitiation. So let's break those three down real quick. The first is, the question is, what is the incarnation? Right, any of you asking that question, what is the incarnation? Easy answer, it's what we just got done celebrating, It's the significance of the Christmas season that God took on human form, that he came to earth and he lived among us. God in the flesh who came to this place, the incarnate God, right? That he came, that Jesus, the Messiah came and he took on human nature and he took on a physical body in order that he would fully relate to us. That's what the incarnation is in John chapter one. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then if you jump to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh, right? The word here is referring to the person of Jesus, right? God in the flesh. It says the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. He came and lived and he walked on this earth and he breathed. And he lived this life. The word became flesh and he dwelled among us. He goes on and says, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who brings us grace and truth. Right, that's the incarnation. That God took on human form and he came and he lived among us. In Philippians chapter two, Paul writes about the incarnation and he says, who being in the very nature God, he was referring to Jesus here. He's he saying that we should model our life after Jesus. He says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. See, that's what the incarnation is, is that Jesus was God in the flesh who came here to earth to live among us so that he could fully relate to us. The second thing is, the question is, what is a high priest? Right, what is a high priest? Now, most of us, we don't have any real context for that today. And no, none of our pastors are high priests, not even Corey. Right, We kind of know priests were kind of the religious leaders of the time, but there was one particular leader who was set apart, who was given a unique responsibility and given a unique privilege as the religious leader over the people. And what that responsibility and what that privilege entailed was a few things, but the most significant was this, that one time a year, as a part of the, the celebration of Yom Kippur, right? The day of atonement. One time of year, the high priest and only the high priest was able to enter into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice as a forgiveness of sins for all of the people. And so one time of year, he could go into the presence of God. It says he would go to the the throne of God, his mercy seat, as it's referred to. Right, he would go into the holy of holies, Think about it this way, because I don't think any of us have been in a Jewish temple, but kind of the way it was set up was there was kind of this outer court. Think about kind of like our patio in our lobby, kind of that area where people go and interact and hang out and do all these things. And then you come into a closer place, to a place of worship. And we come into like this sanctuary, a place where we come before God and we worship him. But then behind this curtain is the actual very presence of God, the mercy seat, the throne of God. And none of us could go behind that curtain because of our sin. We would be instantly killed because of the power and the presence of God. And so one time of year, this high priest was given the opportunity to go behind the curtain, to go into the very presence of God and to put the blood of a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat to offer the mercy of God, the forgiveness of sin for all the people. That's what a high priest 
was. The last thing, what is propitiation? Right? What is propitiation? If you're having a hard time writing it down, before, there it is. You can put it in your little notes thing there. Right? It's this idea, really kind of uh, the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction. It carries with it kind of a two-part action. The first part is that it satisfies the wrath of God. It appeases or it satisfies God's wrath. Right? It takes care of the penalty of the payment. But the second part is that it reconciles us to God. So the atonement or propitiation satisfies the wrath of God. And because God's wrath is satisfied, because the penalty has been paid, the payment has been made, we are then restored or reconciled back into right relationship with God. So it's because of the atonement, because of propitiation of Jesus, the wrath of God was satisfied. The payment was made. And we have been reconciled to God. So if we were playing Jeopardy and you're putting in your final answer to any of these questions, all you have to put in is, who is Jesus? Yes, Jesus is the church answer today. It is the right answer. It's the only answer. It's only Jesus. Only Jesus is the incarnate God in the flesh. Only Jesus is our high priest. And only Jesus offered atonement and is the propitiation for our sin, the sacrifice. Only Jesus is God dwelling in the flesh among us, making a sacrifice for our sin in order that it would satisfy the wrath of God and that it would pay the penalty of sin so that we might be made right with God. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. See, John the Baptist, right? He was the one who was kind of came before God. He said he was making the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist, when he had a crowd of people around, he saw off in the distance Jesus and he pointed out to him. And in John chapter one, verse 29, it says, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Right? When he saw Jesus, he acknowledged and he identified and he declared, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. He is the incarnate God. He is our high priest. He is the propitiation for our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the birth of Jesus was so significant. Now, I know we just got through the Christmas season, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to it just a little bit longer. Right? There's just so much to the Christmas story. There's so much to the celebration of the birth of Christ. And if you were with us on Christmas Eve and we celebrated that the King has come and that the King is coming again, and there's so much meaning into everything that happens. And we can take all these different parts of the Christmas story and we can pull out all of this insight into who Jesus is and what he has done for us. If you went through the Advent study during uh, the Christmas season that we put out and you spent time focusing on things like love and joy and peace and hope, all of those things have such rich meaning and significance in light of the Christmas story, in light of the fact that Jesus came to earth. There's one thing that, I actually came across a couple of years ago and it brought about kind of a, a new significance, a new understanding to a piece of the Christmas story that I knew really well, but I'd never really thought a ton about. And it was about the reality of where exactly was Jesus born? Have you ever thought about that? I know the, right, the Bible tells us he was born in Bethlehem. We all know that. But where specifically was Jesus born? Like where in Bethlehem? We all know, right? They went to an inn and there was no room and they went from one to the other and, and everything was full. And somewhere along the line, I got in my head this idea that where Jesus was born was they got to the last possible hotel, the most rundown place they could imagine, right? Like that, what's it called? Like the airport inn or whatever over there by marketplace, 
right? This kind of rundown building, right? It's like they got there. They were getting desperate on where do I stay? And even they got there and they're like, sorry, we're full. But if you want to go out back, we got some animals out there and you can hang out with them. Like somewhere I got this idea that maybe that's where Jesus was born, out back of the last possible hotel. But maybe the actual place where Jesus was born had even more meaning and significance than that. Now, we don't actually know. So what I'm going to share with you this morning isn't like proven fact, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. It's certainly a possible idea, and it has some merit and some value to it. And in the end, it doesn't really matter exactly where he was born. But this potential location of Jesus's birth brings about a rich meaning and a rich significance of who exactly this Jesus is that was being born. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to read to us the Christmas story, and I'm sure you've all read it a bunch of times over the last couple of weeks, but I want to read it to us again. And as I'm reading it, I want you to think about and look for any clues that tell us about maybe where exactly Jesus was born. And so in Luke chapter two, we'll start in verse, uh, let's start, let's see, where do we want to start? (laughs) I wrote it down here, verse six. All right, we're going to start in verse six of Luke chapter two. Let me get to the right chapter. Here we go. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, right? So that's pretty clear. We know exactly what city he's in. But let's try and figure out where within Bethlehem he is. It says, because he belonged to the house of the line of David, he went there and he registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds that were living out in the fields nearby and they were keeping uh, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them, they had gone into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So we don't get a lot, but we know it's in Bethlehem. And we know that he was wrapped in cloths and he was placed in a manger. Well, this is what an author named Brant Hansen wrote. And no, he's not related. But this is what he wrote about the possible location and the possible significance of Jesus's birth location. It says mangers are odd things. They're feeding troughs, of course. In ancient Israel, they were made of stone. They're not super comfortable, but you know what? In a pinch, they can be kind of protective. That's why priests who lived near Bethlehem, near a hill, known for raising sacrificial lambs, would put the lambs in them. Not all lambs, just the ones that were thought to be without blemish, that were suitable for a blood sacrifice, sacrifices to cover sin. When these lambs in Bethlehem, or these were the lambs in Bethlehem that Bethlehem was famous for, there was a hill there with a tower, Midgal Eater, and the flocks nearby were the ones that yielded lambs for sacrifice. The priests wanted to keep these lambs without bumps and bruises. So they would wrap them tightly. They would swaddle them. And wrapping them in cloth, like precious and terribly fragile bottles of wine, and they'd lay them in a manger. Manger is only mentioned in one account of Jesus's birth. It's in Luke. And it makes sense 
there's really only a small group of people who would understand its significance. And they are the very ones to hear the words, you will find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. Shepherds, the shepherds of the sacrificial flock, they knew what the cloths and the manger meant. This will be a sign to you, the angel said. And it was, it wouldn't have been a sign to many, but to them, most definitely. And this sign was staggering. The long expected king wasn't headed to a palace. No, this was going to be different. He was going to be sacrificed. They knew where the Messiah was born, but they also knew where he was headed. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Right, Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the incarnate, God in the flesh, our high priest who atoned for your sin and for my sin and for the sins of all the people, paid the penalty for our debt, forgave us of all of our sin and restored us and reconciled us back into right relationship with God. God's mercy extended to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're going to finish this morning by taking communion. And if, uh, if you're joining us online, hopefully you got the message a little while ago to grab a piece of bread and some juice or something to drink. For those of you here on your way in, hopefully you, you grabbed one of those little cups like this. It just has symbols, right? A, a little piece of bread and some juice. Symbols for us to, to stop and reflect and to think about the mercy of God, the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus had gathered his disciples together and he knew that in the coming hours and in the coming days, he was going to be that high priest who was going to go before the very throne of God, that his blood was going to be shed on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of all mankind. And so he gathered his disciples together and he spent this time with them. And he wanted to encourage them to always remember what was about to happen, to never forsake the meaning of the cross, to never overlook the significance of the price that was paid. And so he had gathered them together. And it was in the midst of the Passover celebration, a time of year when, when the people of Israel would gather and they would remember what's recorded back in Exodus chapter 12 when God was going to exercise his wrath over the Egyptian people and their gods. And God was gonna come and he was gonna take the life of the firstborn in every home. But there was gonna be a payment that was taken for the sin of the people. And the wrath of God was gonna be exercised. And it was told to the people of Israel who were living in exile among the Egyptians to go and take blood and to put it over the doorframe of their home. And then when God would come and when his wrath would come down and take these lives, he would see that blood over the doorframe and he would pass over that home. He would offer his mercy to that household. And he would spare the life. And so that's what the Passover celebration was all about, this remembrance. And it was during that that Jesus gathered his disciples together. And in Matthew 26, we see what Jesus says with them. And just in verses 26 through 29, Jesus has them at the table. They're enjoying the Passover feast. 
And it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus had gathered them together and asked them to remember and to celebrate. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And and there's only one stipulation if you've not been here at Harvest Wings before and or been a part of taking communion with us, we invite all of you to be a part of this. But there's only one stipulation is that you have acknowledged your sin and your need for a savior and recognize that it is in the person of Jesus that God offers his mercy to you. That your sin has been forgiven, not because of your own efforts, but because of the shed blood of Jesus on the mercy seat of God as a payment for your sin, that your debt might be forgiven. And if we've acknowledged that and we've surrendered our life to Jesus, taking on his values, the values of the kingdom, the values of God, allowed him to transform and change our life. If you've done that this morning, we encourage you to take these elements in just a moment with great remembrance and with great celebration of what he's done for you. But if this morning you you haven't gotten to that place yet, you're still wondering, is this really true? What is this really all about? I encourage you to, to use this time to consider it, to consider God's love for you, to consider your need for his mercy and his forgiveness to consider the depth of his love for you, that it is so deep that he offered his life on your behalf, his death for yours. And so this bread and this juice represent his life broken and spilled on the mercy seat for your forgiveness that you might forever be reconciled to God. So use this time and consider that. Use this time to worship him. We're going to sing one song and then I'm going to come back up and we'll take the elements together. Thank you. 
forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned, I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and rose again. Let's take a moment and let's honor our King. Let's remember what he's done for us, the sacrifice that he offered on our behalf, the penalty that he paid for us, for the forgiveness of sin that we might be reconciled to God. When Jesus was with the disciples, he took that piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. So let's take and let's eat. And he also took a cup. And in the midst of the the Passover celebration and the Passover meal, saw that the cup that he grabbed was actually known as the cup of redemption. to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to be restored back in the right relationship with God. That a debt would be paid. And he took that cup, that cup of redemption, and said it's a new covenant and a new relationship between God and man. That it was through his blood that was soon to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. So he said, take this cup and drink in remembrance of me. So let's drink. We're going to finish out and we're going to 
just celebrate one last song acknowledging who Jesus is. And again, I just want to remind you if, if you're still considering that today, if you weren't ready to take this today, I encourage you to take it home and place it somewhere that'll just cause you to at least stop and think each day about the meaning, about God's mercy. And then when that time comes, when you acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is and you accept his payment for you, then I encourage you to to use that and to take that at that time as a declaration of what he's done for you. After the service, I'm going to be hanging around up here and some of our other pastoral staff will be in the lobby and we'd love to talk with you more. If today you made the decision to receive God's mercy, to experience his forgiveness and to take on his values, those would be transformed and changed within you. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to know so we can pray for you and we can get some other things into your hands to help you along and what it looks like to live as a a part of the kingdom of God. And if you're still not there yet, but you just have questions, we'd love to answer those for you today too, or just begin that conversation and to walk with you in that journey of understanding God's grace and mercy. So let's worship him. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.